friends, it's time again for Healthcare is Hilarious. Yes, it's me, Casey Quinlan, the mighty mouth of Mighty Casey Media, here again with a snark-filled review of American healthcare. If you've been paying attention, you know that I'm all over the idea that people, the ones commonly called patients in the medical industrial complex, should be the primary controllers of their health information and their health data. This week's episode features slices from a recent conversation I had with Matthew Holt, who is, among many other things, the founder of the Healthcare Blog, co-founder of the Health 2.0 Universe of Conferences, and now leading Smack Health, an advisory and consulting network in healthcare and health tech. If you want to know what's happening in health IT and technology, just ask Matthew. No, really, just ask him. Not only does he know, he knows it really well, like he's totally OG and WTF is going on in HIT, for realsies. Here's Matthew on what he sees on the radar for health data. The technologies are now getting good enough to start tracking data up and down the stack. And the, the big game changer here is, is the blockchain and the ability to identify, de-identify and re-identify individuals at particular parts of the chain. So there's a group that I'm vaguely affiliated with called the EP3 Foundation. Um, and they are trying to put together, they're one of a number of people trying to put together a kind of obscured data network which will allow you as an individual to control you know, access to your data, um, allow you to gather it all in one place or gather it from across the network. It'll do a lot of identification of you, um, identity by consensus and a bunch of other terms to figure out who is who. And they'll allow you to attribute your individual pieces of data and allow them to be used for various different pieces. And at some point, there will be financial flow back to the data providers, and eventually the individuals allow opting into their data as well in that process. Meanwhile, in the real world... I still end up going, you know, I don't know how much that individual piece of data is worth and how much people are prepared to pay for it. I still tend to think that the software and the services that are bought by organizations in healthcare cost a hell of a lot more than the data that's in there. You can do a lot of valuable stuff if you understand the data, but you really need to have a mass of data. It may be that the value of data in these equations ends up delivering free services back to the people supplying data. But that's more likely to be a free subscription or a semi-free subscription to an app on the Facebook model. Matthew, like me, is a realist. I see a lot of this stuff from PowerPoint. There isn't much written reality at the moment. But you could imagine that a lot of this data is going to be very valuable because it will allow a lot of waste in the system to get exerted. And all these people who are either tiny startups or big players like Change Healthcare and Aetna and whomever who are fussing around with blockchain are kind of, you know, looking at this kind of thing and saying, is there a way that we can use blockchain and other types of data integrity models, data tracking to figure out what data came from where, went to where, and did what in the process. This improves the efficiency of what we as a company are doing and this allow us to do things like really figure out what's working in research, in pay-for-value healthcare, and blah, blah, blah. When it comes to ideas about monetizing individual humans' data, that's not soup yet. If you believe all that, if you believe that there is you know, ways that we can save that money in healthcare. That could be a big if. <laughs> that could be a big if. And, you know, you and I have talked about this, and you've been on talking about, you know, how irrational and crazy pricing and value is in healthcare now, and just saying that we could put 
you know, a better understanding of how things happen doesn't mean that that, that pricing will change because a lot of people's options will get gone. But if you believe all that, the blockchain technologies and the associated sort of privacy, hashing, identity, consensus technologies and the smart contracts that go with it could create a sort of infrastructure whereby people can get rewarded and cut into revenue share for data and then eventually that should go back to the eventual data suppliers that you as a individual could have a contract with any number of services you use and if they monetize your data in the back end you get a bit. Clinical trials are one place where that pay me for my data idea could get some traction. Matthew and I chewed on that for a few minutes. That's the only part of healthcare where an individual patient Find an individual patient costs a lot of money, and you know figuring out how to get to that patient. Is, there are businesses themselves recruiting patients for that. I mean, there are. I'm not yeah. saying there aren't. You know, there are people like WeGo Health and whatever who are trying to figure out how to how to recruit patients for consulting and what have you. But in the end, that as a market, you know, just, that's more like that that's a, a marketplace for consulting. It's not. You know, recruiting someone for a clinical trial is basically recruiting their data their past data and their future data, right? There could be some room, uh, particularly for those patients who participate in, you know, the entire longitude of the trial, and then a drug is approved and is being sold for, you know, billions or whatever, that those people, yes, of course, they did derive a benefit from it because they were in the trial, and perhaps they were some of the ones who had the outstanding outcome. I mean, I do realize that there's a trade-off, but there could be an interesting economic can opener, as I would put it. Before you leave that point, I mean, that's, that's an interesting idea, right? So then you have to say to, now right now there's no incentive for the drug company to say, oh, by the way, if you come to this trial and it all works out, or cut you into like 5% of the you know, value of whatever. And that, and that, then there is some money, right? Because it does cost, right now they're trying to, the drug companies are trying to reduce the cost of recruiting because that's really expensive and very hard. And because recruiting takes a long time, the trial takes a long time their patent starts expiring, and so, you know, the faster you can finish the damn thing off mm-hmm. and get it out on, the more money you can make more quickly. They're still using 20th century recruitment oh. models. If they actually yeah, decided I, to start talking directly to patient communities in a more effective way. You say, you say that, and a bunch of people have had a go at this, right? So a bunch of the people who put together patient communities in spas in the world have tried to figure out how, how can they improve that, and it hasn't really worked. So I don't know if, if more contribution to open databases where people are kind of on call, more like a sort of registry model, putting millions of people into those and, and submitting their data on a regular basis would work and improve that. I don't know. I mean, there's, there's, there's well, a model that's, to be That's come, always come been my dream, that thing you just said, yeah. that, you know, basically that people would understand the utility and the power of their own longitudinal health data. And then there would be some kind of a machinery that would allow people who wished to make those contributions and then see a benefit from it. So the benefit is get in the trial, hopefully it helps. Even if you did that, maybe saying we will cut you into the value of the drug we sell at the end if it works, but again, you know, a lot of these things don't work. Will that help make people more likely to talk to, to opt into that kind of system? I mean, maybe. We shifted gears and started talking about why Americans are okay with spending like drunken sailors on healthcare every year. If you didn't know that, we do. We spend close to $3.5 trillion every year, with about a trillion of it thought to be wasted. And what do we get for it? Ha-ha, we're not even in the top 10 of developed nations in how healthy we actually are. So, here's Matthew on why he thinks that is. Every other country in the world figured it out and passed national health care 
in some kind of ra- look. Everybody struggles with the healthcare system, but at least has some kind of rational national concept that you know healthcare spending has to be a national uh, issue, and, and generating funds for that has to be sort of put together, right? In the U.S., we not only have this thing where the government can be split up and controlled apart, but also we have a distinction between taxation and spending, right? So you have these spending bills which get made, and then you pass bills expanding healthcare and doing this to the other, and everyone, all the interest groups get their little, their little place for it. And then taxation and spending for this stuff tends to happen differently. Now, to be fair to the Obama crowd in 2010, they made an effort to like balance the cost of the ACA, but that was the first time that ever happened in health spending. Right? If you think about when Medicare and Medicaid were introduced, there was nothing. There was some vague idea that it might or may not cost money, but there was no cost containment built in. In fact, it was cost acceleration. And then the other thing that is, and the same thing is true with the Medicare Modernization Act or the Medicare Drug Bill. The last part, which is equally insane, is that we've got a system where employers pay the health care for most people, which is nuts. And it has a massive tax advantage that enables more valuable for richer people and has managed to get gummed up in the politics of unions so that unions are providing health benefits. So you have both employers, rich people, and unions who don't want to change the tax deductibility of health care. So by definition, you make something tax-free, you're going to have more of it right? <laughs> than if you don't. So you have both the politics of the U.S., I, you know, which is what the government spends, which is Medicare, Medicaid, and all the other stuff, plus the politics and just the legacy of you know, what happened in the 40s when employers started offering health insurance and then it became tax deductible. But we now have this 80, more like, you know, more like 80, 90 years, we've been stuck in this cycle where nobody is in charge of the whole healthcare budget. And worse, nobody's in charge of figuring out whether what we're spending makes any sense. And anytime anybody tries to do that, you know, looking at this stuff, it gets completely ignored because it's so much easier for the healthcare industry, which is so profitable, to, to come in and start pushing people around and saying, hey. Meanwhile, other developed nations are doing things very differently. Social spending, which is social spending plus healthcare spending, here we spend a tremendous amount less on social spending than everybody else. You know, if you look at the bar charts of that, you know, the Scandinavian countries are spending about 40 to 45% of their GDP on social, including health, right? And we're spending about 30, of which 18 is on health or 19 is on health percent. Whereas in Scandinavia, it's about 10 on health and the rest of it's on social. So that tells you that if you spend more money on things like housing and social services and blah, 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 you reduce your need for healthcare. I mean, I'm driving to San Francisco at the moment. I'm seeing people on the side of the road who are, I bet you are very, very expensive when they show up in the emergency room. Very little spent on the social, social yeah. services. And if we spend a little bit more on their housing and they're getting them a job and getting them stabilized and a bunch of other stuff and getting them, we would spend a lot, save a lot of money on healthcare. But we have really struggled to do that because we have no essentially national social welfare policy. And that goes back to the second reason that Americans are saying, well, the first one was the politics of it. The second reason is that there's still this cultural thing, which whether it's a myth, whether it's believed by enough people, a lot of people, is that I'm doing okay and screw the rest of you because I made it on the frontier. It's complete mythology, of course. There was the Frank Capra version, and then there was the John Wayne version. And sadly, <laughs> the John Wayne version is now blowing everybody's head off. Still, Frank Capra got ground under some tank treads, so Capra's gone. 
Bye bye, Frank. Enough of this happy horse shit. Is there any hope? Technology could provide the answer, and we're not talking just MRIs and robotic surgery. Consumer tech could be a can opener. But the hope for American healthcare is that we move to a model where we can do much, much better monitoring, servicing, and care of the chronically ill in our own home, and that the tech that we're putting into home right now to play movies and you know to ask Alexa to play songs and do the shopping list and whatever else. And the tech that we're putting in the bathroom to start measuring people's basic vital functions gets amped up and that we use, that we start putting a network out there. We've got the network. We start putting out the actual systems in place that start monitoring and looking after chronically ill people much, much earlier than we've been doing it to this point. I think that you can see some flashes of that with some of the work being done by some of the big tech companies and a lot of the the, the concept of can the Amazons and the Apples get into your home and start managing better than the organizations which have made the 3.5 or 3.2 trillion so far, who have generally been, uh, what they've been doing is steering people to their big white building and making that medical palace get bigger and bigger and bigger and where's all the money goes. If you want to stay on top of what's happening in healthcare, health policy, and health tech, put the healthcare blog on your daily reading list. And if you're on Twitter, definitely follow Matthew. All of his links are in the show notes, as are some relevant links about healthcare spending in the U.S. and in other countries. And now it's time for this week's rant. Speaking of spending like drunken sailors on leave on healthcare, this week saw some hilarious fistfights over a report from the Mercatus Center, a libertarian think tank at George Mason University, which Pearl clutched over Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill in the Senate, exclaiming that Sanders' plan would increase U.S. healthcare spending by $32 trillion over the next 10 years. Oh, the humanity! But wait a minute. We're spending close to $3.5 trillion a year right now, with costs predicted to increase in the next 10 years by an average of 5.5% a year. Back of the napkin, simple arithmetic, that means that we'll be spending close to 55 trillion bucks on healthcare in the next 10 years, in other words, by 2028, with our current status quo payment model. So Bernie's big idea looks like it could save us almost 20 trillion bucks. And everybody would be covered. So let's do it. Oh, right, that's a terrible idea. Because helping every American person be as healthy as possible is just a shitty idea, right? America, it's a wonderful country. Just don't get sick. Well, that's the show, kids. Tune in again next week for more Healthcare is Hilarious Fun. This episode, as always, is sponsored by Danny Van Leeuwen, also known as Health Hats. With his diverse and prolific health experience, Danny uses his multiple hats to empower people as they travel toward their best health. To join Danny on that best health journey, follow along on his blog. 